First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Acts chapter 17? Acts 17, in this series, we're continuing to walk with the Apostle Paul and his team as they take the good news of Jesus into some of the most important cities in the ancient world. Last week, it was the city of Philippi where Paul shared. We met a woman named Lydia, gave her heart to Christ, and her family was saved. We met a demon-possessed girl who was set free, presumably added to the church as well. Then we met a Philippian a jailer, the Roman jailer who came to Christ, his family was baptized also, and, and with that, the first church in all of Europe was started. Today, we're going to read about how Paul and his team take the gospel to two more cities. And so let's find out what happens. Acts 17, starting in verse 1. We read now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word today that we have just read. And we ask that, Lord, by your grace, we might be like these in Berea who we're eager to hear your word and to receive it. Father, we pray that you would give us a heart not only to hear but to obey the things that you say to us today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's power. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the verse that stands out to me the most in that story that we just read is verse 6. The angry mob went and took Jason and some other new believers in front of the city magistrates. They accused them of committing crimes against Caesar, but they start out by saying these words about Paul and about his fellow missionaries. You see those words there at the end of verse 6. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Those who have turned the world upside down. This is one of the more memorable lines in the entire book of Acts. Uh, But of course, reading it here in context, you can tell that originally it was not meant as a compliment, was it? Uh, It was meant in a derogatory sense. It was meant as an insult. They were saying these guys who have been causing a ruckus everywhere else they've been are now causing a ruckus here. And now come to our city and they're messing everything up, messing with the status quo. But no matter what they meant by it, I just love that they said it. I love how they said it. Those who've turned the world upside down have come here too. Of course, you and I know that Paul and his message were really not turning things upside down. Really, they were turning things right side up. That Paul, through the message he preached about the Lord Jesus, was giving people an opportunity to have a right relationship with the God who made them, the God who loved them. But they thought that Paul's message was turning things upside down because they were upside down. They were living at that moment in an upside down way with upside down values and priorities. And and if you think about it, when you're upside down, when you're standing on your head, then things that are right side up look upside down to you. You know, we're not any different today. We're living in an upside down world right now, aren't we? Our world is upside down about so very many things. Our world is upside down about morality. It's upside down about sexuality. It's upside down about gender. It's upside down about race. It's upside down about truth. It's upside down on the family. It's upside down about marriage. This world is upside down about just about everything. And so, yes, the gospel that was definitely needed in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Berea, but it is just as much needed in Times Square in New York City today. And it's needed here in Melbourne and Palm Bay. My prayer, and I'm sure your prayer as well, is that God would use the people of our church just like he used Paul and Silas and Timothy back then to turn our world upside down because that is what is needed. Here is the truth. An upside down world has to be turned upside down to be right side up. And so how can we do that? How did Paul do that? What can we learn from this passage? Well, again, the story here is about Paul's ministry in two cities and the story really doesn't take a long time to tell, right? It's the ministry in two cities. It's told in the span of of 15 verses. And yet in these verses, I believe we can see two keys to how we need to turn the world upside down today. And both of these keys, as we're going to see, revolve around the Word of God. 
The first key to turning the world upside down is that we need to teach the word of God just as Paul did. Clearly, as we've read through the book of Acts, this is what Paul and his missionary team do, right? They don't come into a city and put on a juggling show. They, they, don't, they don't come into a city and, uh, and, you know, put on an acrobatic show or do tricks or anything else. They just tell people about Jesus. It's what Paul does. He teaches the word of God, and as he does so, people's lives and values and priorities are transformed by the power of the word and the power of the Spirit of God. The first verse of the chapter tells us how Paul and his team made their way to Thessalonica after they left Philippi. They walked southwest along a famous Roman road, the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way. They stopped for the night in a city called Amphipolis, about 30 miles down the road. Then the next day, they traveled another 30 miles or so to a city named Apollonia. And from there, it was a little more than 30 more miles to make it to the city of Thessalonica, altogether a little over 90 miles away from Philippi. Thessalonica was the great capital city of the province. It boasted the largest population of any city in that area, population around 200,000 people. It was a major port city. It was a major commercial center. And really, Paul going to Thessalonica just fits in with Paul's overall philosophy of ministry. He wanted to go to the major influential cities of his day, share the gospel, plant a church there, and then leave. And allow that church to then take the gospel to all the surrounding communities in the more rural areas. When he came to Thessalonica, as verse 2 says, he did what was his custom to do, what he always did when there were enough Jewish folks in that city to have a synagogue. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day when they met together for worship. It says that he went to them for three consecutive Sabbath days. And so three Saturdays in a row, you could find Paul there in the synagogue sharing about Christ. So we know he was in this city for at least three weeks and probably a longer period of time than that. But, but look with me at verses two and three because it shows the way that Paul ministered while he was in the synagogue. It says, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, I want us to break that down a little bit because there's so much in those two verses about the way that we need to teach the word of God. We, we want to teach the word of God today. We first off need to discuss it just as Paul discussed it. In verse 2, it says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Greek word there for reasoned is the word we get our English word dialogue from. It means to have a conversation with someone about something. That's what Paul did in the synagogue with these folks. He didn't just give a lecture. He had a conversation. He likely fielded their questions and asked them questions of his own. He answered their objections. He talked with them about the Lord Jesus. And, you know, th this has to be the starting point for us as well. We have to raise the subject of the Lord with others. 
I know in our culture, we're never supposed to do that, right? The two things you're never allowed to talk about in public are politics and religion. And yet what we find is that many people are much more open to talking about spiritual things than we think, especially if that conversation is happening with someone they consider to be a friend. But we have to be bold. We have to be bold enough to bring up the subject of the Lord. And oftentimes that can be done with a question. Ask people what they think about a certain current event. Ask them about their spiritual background. Ask them if they ever grew up in church. Ask them if they've ever read the Bible, and if they did, what they thought about it. We can't tell anybody about Jesus unless we're first willing to bring up the name of Jesus. Conversation. Paul does that here. Then in verse 3, it says he does something else. That The first word in verse 3 is the word explaining. We need to do that too. We need to explain the word. And the word explain there literally means to open something up. If you think about it, that's what we're doing whenever we explain anything to anyone, right? You're opening up a subject, you're allowing somebody to see it, allowing somebody to understand it and to grasp it. That same word was used in Luke 24, the passage we looked at on Easter Sunday morning. The Lord Jesus was walking down the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and it says that he opened up the scriptures to them and showed them all the Old Testament passages that really were about himself. That's what we're called to do today, to open up the word of God to others. Now we know that increasingly in our culture there are some who are closed off to spiritual truth. There are some who are even hostile to it, who have a whole list of reasons for why they do not believe the Bible. And that's why explaining the Bible is going to look differently depending on who it is that you're talking to. If you're talking to someone who has a religious background, maybe someone who grew up Catholic or grew up Protestant for that matter, they've been around the scriptures, but they've never come to that point of saving faith, but they would still say to you that I, in general, believe the Bible. Well, that gives you a a starting point, doesn't it? A mutually agreed upon starting point. You You can start your sentence with the Bible says, and that will mean something to them. But of course, we know there's a whole nother group of folks in our culture, and that percentage is growing every day, that have no understanding or really knowledge of the Bible at all. And the Bible doesn't mean much to them at all. And so if you start your sentence with the Bible says, that doesn't add anything for them. And so how do we need to explain the scriptures to them? We need to explain even our presuppositions. We need to explain who God is, who we are, what our need is. We need to explain the beauty of God's design for our lives. To help them to see the beauty of God's design. To see it so clearly that they should want to believe that it's true even before they actually do. I know we're mainly thinking about explaining the Bible to the lost because that's what Paul was doing in the synagogue over those three Sabbath days. But you know, another place where we need to explain The Bible, one of the most important places we need to explain the Bible is around our own dining room tables with our own children. Parents, the only place that you talk about the Bible should not be in church. We should be talking about the Bible all the time. When you get home on Sunday, it says, talk about the message that your family has heard. After you get done talking about how shiny the preacher's bald head is, right? When you're done with that, we moved on from that. 
Talk about what you heard. Talk about what the word of God says. Ask them if they understand it. Ask them questions. Let them ask questions of you. And don't just do that on Sundays. Do that every day of the week. It says in Deuteronomy to talk about the word when we rise up, when we lie down, when we walk along the way all the time. Ask him what they're learning in school. Ask him what they're being taught. And if you hear some, maybe some presuppositions in the way they're answering your question that you know don't line up with the word of God, that's an opportunity to parent. That's an opportunity to teach our kids what the scripture has to say about that topic, to shine the truth of the word of God upon it. It's important we discuss the word, that we explain the word. We also need to do the third thing that it says Paul did here. We need to prove the word. We need to demonstrate the truthfulness of the Bible. Again, verse three, it says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. The, the word demonstrating there is a legal term. It means to, to lay evidence on the table in a court of law. To lay on the table, exhibit A, B, and C as you're making your case. That's what Paul did in the synagogue. He, he took the scriptures and he laid them out as exhibits for them to see. The Jews of Paul's day had trouble accepting and believing that the Messiah, that the promised one, would suffer and die. That's just not the way they read their Old Testaments. The way they read the scriptures was that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a conquering hero, that he was going to come in and drive out the Romans, and he was going to set up his kingdom immediately, and he was going to rule and reign on the earth, and of course, one day he will. But the Old Testament also speaks about what Christ did the first time he came, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again. And so Paul laid exhibits on the table about that. I'm sure he spoke from Psalm 22, the passage we looked at on Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, and Isaiah 53, and many other passages as, as well that speak about what Christ came to do. Today, as we share the message of Jesus, we need to make the case as well. We need to lay the evidence on the table. And the evidence that is needed, again, will look differently depending on who it is that you're speaking to. Some, some people might need evidence about the reliability of the Bible before they'll consider what it says. Some people might need evidence about creationism. Others might need evidence about the resurrection or miracles. Others might need evidence about what makes Christianity unique from the other religions of the world. There's a lot of different kinds of evidence and, and proofs that can be given to defend what the Bible says. But I, I want to share this with you as well. One of the greatest proofs that we can give is the proof of a transformed life. You know, that's what Paul did in Thessalonica. The, the arguments that Paul made were, were not just the verbal arguments that he made when he stood in the synagogue on those three Sabbath days. No, they were able to witness the life that he lived among them the whole time he was there. A lifestyle that backed up the message that he preached. And later when Paul would write two letters to this church in Thessalonica that he planted, he would remind them of that. Look at what it says here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, 
because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. In other words, even the way that they did their quote-unquote secular work was a part of the evidence of the change in their life. Verse 10, it says, You are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Friend, the evidence that is needed most is the evidence of your changed life. Paul didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He and Silas lived differently. They loved differently with a love that only comes from God. And ultimately, it's the way we live and it's the way that we love that will earn a hearing for the message about Christ that we share. Paul went into the synagogue again on those three Sabbaths. He discussed the word. He explained the word. He proved and demonstrated the word. And verse 4 says that some who heard Paul, not all, but some, were persuaded and they believed. Some of the Jewish men did. Some of the Gentiles did. Some of the prominent leading women in the city did as well. They joined Paul and Silas and a new Christian church was planted right there in the heart of this city of Thessalonica. Verse four tells us that not everybody was persuaded. There were some who, who not only did they not believe, they didn't just walk away and say, well, well, I don't believe that. Now they, they were angry. And the text tells us that they were also envious. They were envious of the people who were turning to Christ, who were hearing Paul's message and believing it, and they wanted it to stop. And so they went and rounded up some, some rough characters, some, some riffraff that used them to stir the crowd up into a frenzy, into a mob. And then they went to this man Jason's house. And we don't know much about who Jason was except for Presumably, he was one of the Jewish men who had heard Paul's message and put his faith in Christ. Paul and his missionary team were staying at Jason's house just as they stayed at Lydia's house in Philippi. The church, this new church, was probably beginning to meet for worship at Jason's house. And so this mob shows up. They surround this house. They want to drag Paul out. They want to drag Paul in front of the city magistrates, but Paul is not there. It's likely that they got word of what was about to happen, and so they shuffled Paul away someplace else. And since they couldn't find him, they could find the owner of the home, Jason. And so they dragged him and some of the other new Christians along with him. They dragged him in front of the magistrates. They accused them of, of teaching things that were contrary to Caesar. That there was another king, king named Jesus. As one person put it, what they charged them of was in one sense of course, false, a very different kind of kingdom that they were preaching about. But in another sense, what they said here is profoundly true. This was their message. Their message was about another king, a king that is far greater than Caesar, the king of kings, King, king Jesus. When the city leaders heard that charge, they didn't like it. But they reacted differently than the leaders in Philippi did. They didn't arrest them or beat them. Instead, they took some money from them as security. You might call it a good behavior bond, a guarantee from Jason that Paul and Silas wouldn't be allowed to cause any more trouble. And for all intents and purposes, that meant that Paul had to leave town. 
Verse 10, that's what they do. Paul and Silas leave that city by night. They arrive in the city of Berea a few days later. It was about 45 miles or so away from Thessalonica. Berea was an important town as well, but it was a little bit off the beaten path. But they had a synagogue as well. There was a Jewish population there. And so Paul, just like he did in Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue. He begins to share about the Lord Jesus. But as you read the story of Paul's ministry in the city of Berea in verses 10 to 15, you notice that the emphasis in those verses isn't as much on the way that Paul shared about Jesus as it is about the way that the Bereans received the message that Paul shared. And that's the second key to turning the world upside down. It's not just about teaching the word of God. It's also about the way we receive the word of God when we hear it. We need to teach the word like Paul, but we also need to receive the word like the Bereans did. In verse 11, Luke gives these Bereans quite a compliment. Look at that with me. It says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And there is a whole lot packed into that verse about how we need to receive the word. First off, to receive the word today, we have to be open to it. We have to be open to hearing it. That's what the word fair-minded there means. Some of your translations may have the word noble there or noble-minded there. And that's because that Greek word was originally used to describe the nobility, somebody who had a noble birth. But then it came to be used also of people who had a noble mindset, who thought in a noble way. It means to to, to think in a way that is without prejudice, to give people a fair hearing, to be open-minded in a good sense. I almost hesitate to use that word open-minded because in our culture, the meaning of that word open-minded has been so badly twisted. Today, in our culture, the idea of being open-minded means that you really don't have any convictions about anything. An open-minded person in our culture is someone who doesn't believe anything with an absolute certainty. And so they're always open to another idea that might change what they think because they don't really think anything for sure. I love what G.K. Chesterton famously said about that. He said, we have an open mind for the same reason we have an open mouth so that we can chomp down on something solid. In other words, we don't walk around with an open mouth for no reason. We have an open mouth so we can close down on something that's good. It's the same thing with an open mind. doesn't mean that we have nothing but squishy beliefs that we'll give up at the drop of a hat. It means that like here, we'll give people a fair hearing and consider and think about whether what they are saying is true or not. For these people in Berea, Paul walked into their synagogue and he began to teach things they had never heard about the Lord Jesus, but they considered them with an open mind. And as we'll see, many of them came to believe as well. In the same way, church, we need to be open-minded. We need to be soft-hearted, not hard-hearted towards the word of God. We need to be open to hearing it and receiving it and doing what it says. I love how James puts it in James chapter one. He said, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness or humility 
the implanted word, listen, which is able to save your souls. So let's be open to the word, but also, church, let's be eager for the word. Again, in verse 11, we see that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. The word readiness means eagerness. They were eager to hear the word. They were eager to receive the word. Friend, how eager are you right now to read the word? How eager are you right now in your life to, to study the word? How eager are you to hear the word preached? Maybe you had an eagerness for the word when you were first saved. But if you're honest today, somewhere along the line, your eagerness for God's word has cooled. It's time to pray and ask God to give you a hunger and a thirst again for his life-giving word. I pray that individually in our church, we'd have an eagerness for the word of God. That we'd be more like John Bunyan who read the word so much and so often that the word just oozed out of everything that he wrote. Or maybe like George Mueller, who had said, read the Bible 200 times through in his life. A hundred of those times he read the Bible through on his knees. God, make us hungry, eager for your word. And I pray we wouldn't just be eager for it individually, but we'd be eager for it corporately as a church. I love what Pastor Tony Marita said about that. He said, quote, Oh, that churches would be filled with more people longing more for biblical food than for Sunday morning cotton candy entertainment, funny stories, and pithy anecdotes. May God grant us a Berean appetite for the scriptures. So let's be open to the word. Let's be eager for the word. And then finally, let's be discerning about the word, discerning about the word. Look again one more time at verse 11 with me. It says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. This is probably what the Bereans are best known for, their discernment. The fact that they were not gullible. They didn't just receive what was said because some teacher said it or some charismatic preacher said it, but, but they were checking out uh, whether what they heard lined up with the scriptures or not. You know, you know it's funny, um, every year they put out those lists about uh, the most popular baby names from the year before, right? They put out the list, you know, in 2020, the top 10 names for boys were this, the top 10 names for girls were this. You know, if you were to put out a list of the top 10 names for Sunday school classes or Bible study groups, the name Berean would be on that list. In fact, the name Berean, Berean Sunday school class has been on that list for 2,000 years and counting, right? This is the most popular name. And you know, the thing is though, I checked our list of Sunday school classes you know, nobody has the name Berean. We have the name Antioch. Do you know that, Pastor? We have the name Antioch. We have Salt and Light, Truth Seeker, a lot of great names, but nobody has the name Berean. So that's just a public service announcement. It is open for the taking. You want to start a new group? And, and what a great name it is. 
Because the Bible is commending them here for what they are doing, that they are testing what they hear against the word of God. And it's something that we always should do. Certainly, we need to test the garbage that we hear on TV and that oftentimes we hear in college and university classrooms from professors, some of whom it's almost like their mission in life is to undermine the faith of any evangelical that should stumble into their classroom. We need to test what we are hearing against the word of God. But you know, in this context, it really isn't speaking primarily about testing things that come from the world. It's speaking about testing Christian preaching against the word. Specifically, it's talking about testing the preaching of the apostle Paul against the word. And you know what, if we need to test what the Apostle Paul says to make sure it's biblical, then certainly we need to test anything that we hear from anybody else. I don't care whether you're listening to John Piper or John MacArthur or whoever it might be, you need to test it against the Word of God. And certainly, church, that is true for anything that you hear from me, from this pulpit. Don't just take my word on something. Because I'm not the authority in this church. The word of God is. There there are things in my theology, I'm sure, that are wrong that I don't even know are wrong. The Lord will straighten me out one day. Don't take something that I say, you hear me say that, well, well, Pastor Scott said that, so that must be the case. Now, God never said that my word will last forever. He never said your word will last forever. But but he did say that this word will last forever. He said the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So let's be discerning, church. Let's test everything we hear against the word of God before we receive it into our hearts and into our minds and into our thinking. Let's make sure like the Bereans did that it passes muster, that it lines up what God has already said to be true. As you can imagine, because the folks in Berea were so eager to hear the word and to receive the word, many of them believed in Christ and were saved. Just like in Thessalonica, some of the Jews believed, many of the Greeks believed, many of the prominent women believed. While Paul's ministry was fruitful in Berea, it was not problem-free, And that's because just like what happened to Paul earlier in his ministry on his first missionary journey where people came from a couple other cities to the city he was in then, that's what happens now. There's people in Thessalonica that hear that Paul is telling about Jesus in Berea, and so they are not happy about that. So they load up a Greyhound bus with protesters. They show up in the city of Berea, and they they just want to rinse and repeat the same plan that worked before. They want to do it again. So they stir up the crowd into a frenzy. They stir up a mob. And now the believers don't want to take any chances. So they immediately send Paul away. Apparently the anger seemed to be most directed at him. They escorted him down to the sea, eventually to the great city of Athens. We'll pick up the story next time about the ministry Paul had there amongst the philosophers of his day. As we close, though, this morning, here's a question or two for us to think about. We've talked about how the world of Paul's day, how the world of our day is upside down, and it is. We've talked about how only hearing the word and, and receiving the word and 
putting our faith in the Lord Jesus is able to turn our lives right side up. But that's a decision that each of us individually has to make at some point in our lives. There were some people who were in the synagogue those three Sabbath days in Thessalonica who were in the synagogue in Berea. They heard Paul come. They heard him present the message, but they didn't believe. They left just as upside down as they were when they came in. And so here's the question for you, friend. Right now, are you upside down or are you right side up? If you're still upside down or you're not sure, Today is the day to open up your heart to the word, open up your heart to the Lord, to believe in him, believe in what he did for you at the cross, how he died to save you and me from our sins, how he rose again on the third day to put your trust and hope in him. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I I do know the Lord. There's been that time in my life where he, in his grace, he did turn me right side up. Well, then here's the question for you. If you are right side up, are you living to turn this upside-down world upside down? Are you living like Paul did, Silas and Timothy? Are you living in such a way that wherever you show up, wherever I show up, people say, "Uh uh-oh. People who turn the world upside down just got here, too. That won't happen if we just go along with the current. It won't happen if we just go with the flow of what our world thinks and believes and it's upside down thinking. It will only happen if we are a church that teaches the word, that receives the word, that does the word. So I mentioned earlier, a little bit after Paul ministered here in the city of Thessalonica, he wrote them a couple of letters. And they're in our New Testaments. We call them 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. I pray that what Paul wrote to them, this church that he planted, about the impact that they were having on the world, about how they went out after they were saved and they turned their world upside down for Christ all over the region. I pray that our church would have the same effect right here where he's placed us. Listen to these words. Paul, Silvanus, that's another name for Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Having received the word, we just read about that, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today, we pray today that these words that Paul wrote about this ancient church would be true of our church. Lord, we know it's only your grace and your word and your spirit that's able to take our 
upside down thinking and turn it right side up? Lord, help us to sound forth the message that we've received. Father, help us to live in such a way and love in such a way that it earns a hearing from our neighbors for your word. Father, use us in this corner of your kingdom to turn the world upside down for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 